can you all see my screen? I probably won't be able to see you. Okay, good. I see some nods. So I won't be able to look at the chat. Um, so if somebody would interrupt me if there's a question or if anybody on the network just wants to unmute themselves and pipe in, go ahead and do that. Um, thank you for that, that warm welcome. And Detective Badia, thank you for that case. Um, I'm going to do my best to try and tie in bits of that clinical presentation to what we're talking about today because I think it's um, one aspect of why it can be so difficult to work uh, with patients who are living with autism spectrum disorder in the community, both in terms of how law enforcement interacts with, with them, but also um, medical professionals as well. So my goal today is to be talking about autism spectrum and how, um, you know, some tips about how to work with them in the field. Um, but I'm hopefully going to provide you a general overview um, of the diagnosis as well. Um, so here are our learning objectives today. We're going to define autism spectrum disorder. We're going to discuss the characteristics of persons with ASD. And then we're going to review strategies of interacting with persons with ASD. Okay. Um, so what is autism spectrum disorder? Everybody was um, kind of using this outdated term when we were talking about um, the, the clinical presentation, and I want to make sure we, 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 we talk about it, uh, because in the DSM-5, um, the Diagnostic and Statistic Statistical Manual that we use for diagnoses in psychiatry, we talk about this as a spectrum disorder from now on, you know, from, from that point on, from 2013 on. But the term Asperger's kind of still persists within our community, and so that's old terminology to describe describe high-functioning autism. So a lot of people will hold on to that. It's, it's really not something we use anymore, but if you hear Asperger's, that's really alluding to the fact that somebody might have a higher functioning autism. And so when we think about autism spectrum disorder, it's a, you know, a complex uh, group of, um, of, uh, of basically brain development that's been distilled down into two symptom domains, okay? So it's really the impairment in social interaction and communication, and that's both verbal and nonverbal communication. Um, so really like the, the back and forth nature of human um, interaction. And then, you know, these repetitive or, or narrow restricted interests, repetitive behaviors and narrow or restricted interests. Um, it really gets down, you know, distilled down to those two things. By nature of the definition, it occurs early in development or early age. And then I included this graphic because like most things, it occurs on a spectrum, okay? So we can have high functioning autism where people may need some support in terms of their social and communication skills, but you may never know that that person has autism, right? You, you, you're not, you're not going to have a certain look. Um, or they ha may have severe form of autism spectrum where they're nonverbal um, and they're unable to cook for themselves. They're unable to do, you know, much of anything in terms of independent li living. So autism spectrum disorder is not autism spectrum disorder is not autism spectrum disorder. Um, there's a professor of special education in New York. His name's Stephen Shore, and he is famous for saying this phrase, when you meet one person with autism spectrum disorder, you've met one person with autism spectrum disorder. Really alluding to the fact that while there's commonalities in terms of the actual disordered behavior, that there are a great variation, just like there is the rest with the rest of humanity in terms of how the, you know, how the gene pool is expressed. Um, so one of, you know, the things that 
you'll hear physicians saying is there's no look to autism spectrum disorder. Sure, autism spectrum disorder can be related to a genetic abnormality, and we'll talk a little bit about those, um, but there isn't a, somebody looks like they have autism spectrum. Okay, they may behave or speak and have some traits that seem like that, but there isn't a look. Um, so like I said, I alluded to this earlier, that there um, are some known um, associated genetic abnormalities. So those are things like Fragile X syndrome, Rett syndrome, uh, Prader-Willi syndrome. Those are genetic reasons for somebody having ASD, but more often than not, we don't know why somebody has it. Um, there's, there's some um, medical conditions, difficulty with motor coordination, um, language impairment, intellectual impairment, but those things don't have to happen for you to have autism spectrum disorder okay um, so like I said though there can be these complex uh, you know uh, features in terms of their behavioral neurologic or um, genetic expression of that okay so what causes autism well we certainly know it's a combination of things it's not just one thing um, I think everybody got really excited when they were able to identify certain genetic conditions that, that tend to ha tended to have the expression of autism spectrum disorder, like I said, with particularly fragile X, um, because people want an answer as to why things happen, right? But more often than not, we don't know why. Um, that it tends to be, you know, this combination of genetic and environmental influences as to how somebody develops autism. Um, in terms of the genetics, we know that it runs in families. Um, that if a parent carries the genes for autism spectrum, that they can get passed on to a child. Um, or sometimes those um, genetic abnormalities, those genetic variances can arise um, simultaneously. So, it, you know, just having a family history alone doesn't mean one will or will not have it. When we talk about environmental risk factors, we're really talking about things like advanced parent age. And this is not just one. This is both maternal and paternal. Okay. Um, we're talking about pregnancy and birth complications, so things like extreme prematurity, and that's earlier than 26 weeks, uh, low birth weight, or uh, multiple pregnancies, so twin or triplet pregnancies. And then we, we tend to see this association with pregnancies that are spaced less than one year apart for increased incidence of ASD. Okay. Um, and then we also know that there are some things that decrease the risk in the environment. So prenatal vitamins containing folic acid before and at conception and throughout the pregnancy seem to, to have um, lower risks of ASD. But what I want to remind people is that just because there's increased risk doesn't mean that's causation. And I think that's really difficult in, in medicine and, and, and wanting to treat people. Uh, so we want to find a cure, right? Um, and that's, it, those two things don't always um, equate. Um, and so one of the things that always comes up in this lecture is why does this seem to be coming, a, a, why is the, why are the, um, the numbers tending to rise? Why, do the, why does it look like we have more and more people um, who are being diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder? And um, there isn't one easy answer. Uh, what's been speculated is that um, maybe providers are improving in their ability to recognize and diagnose um, autism spectrum disorder. Uh, but then there may be things in the environment that are also increasing. So um, we're not going to spend our time in this lecture today talking about that. That's um, an entire debate for, you know, for another time. Um, but it certainly we do know that it is, uh, the, the rates are increasing. Um, what we do know, though, is what doesn't cause autism. And again, this is somewhat of a controversial um, point, even though I don't understand why. Um, we're not going to touch on it that much. But what I do want everybody on the network to know 
is that vaccines do not cause autism, okay? Vaccines cause adults. Um, and certainly I think during this era of a pandemic um, and everyone having their eyes on um, the upcoming vaccine that's being released, I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing debate whether the COVID-19 vaccine is gonna be safe for children. Um, I'm not going to comment on that. Um, I don't wanna get into that debate, but uh, certainly we do know there's extensive research um, that says that, you know, uh, that, that vaccines given in childhood do not cause autism. Okay, so again, going back to that risk does not um, equal causation. And so there's a comprehensive list of this research. And I actually just want to pull this up for you all because I, I think I think it's really, really important. Um, one for you to check out. I mean, we're going to include this link for you later. Um, but this website um, goes through essentially all of the studies about the safety and number of vaccines. It's extensive and it lists the actual study so that people can go and read it themselves. I'm a parent. I want to make sure that, you know, what I'm doing for my children is safe too. Um, but what bugs me more than anything is um, parents on Facebook um, are utilizing Facebook for their research. So if anyone has questions about that, that's a comprehensive list of that research. So that'll be included. Um, well, okay, so now that I can get off my soapbox a little about, about that, uh, let's talk about the epidemiology of ASD. So what we do know is, like I said, it's, it's increasing um, in terms of the prevalence. Um, so prevalence is in one in 54 children in the United States. Okay, and that's 2016 data. The uh, one in 37 boys and one in 51 girls is updated to 2018 uh, data. Um, so for those of you who need a little bit of an epidemiology review, prevalence is the number of people in a population that have a condition that's related to the people in that population, okay? So we do know that boys are four times more likely to be diagnosed with autism than girls. And certainly I think that skewed some of the ways that we diagnose autism spectrum disorder in girls because most of the tools are based off of what the, what the illness looks like for, uh, for boys. Uh, most children are still being diagnosed after age four. Um, though in our autism research, it, it can be reliably diagnosed at around age two. Um, about 31% of kids who have ASD also have an intellectual disability. And by that, I mean an IQ and intelligence quotient of less than 70. Okay, about 25% um, are in that borderline range, so 71 to 85. And then, um, you know, 44% have IQ scores that are normal, that are average. Okay. Autism seems to affect all ethnic and socioeconomic groups. Um, and unfortunately, minority groups tend to be diagnosed later and less often. And I think there's a, a variety of reasons uh, for that. Any questions about the epidemiology? Okay, let's keep going then. So let's talk about what we mean when we talk about these two distilled symptom domains. Okay, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about this. What we certainly know is there's this impaired ability to have back and forth social interactions and nonverbal and verbal communication skills, okay, both in recognizing and then, um, you know, in engaging with. So, so people on the spectrum really have trouble relating to other people. Uh, they might even avoid interaction with others. But more often than not, it's, it's, it, it is not because they want to avoid it, right? It's uncomfortable feelings. It doesn't mean that they don't want 
friends. And so Detective Padilla, for this person that you were, you were presenting, I believe he wanted friends um, from my interactions with him, but he knew how odd he seemed to other people and that somehow prevented his engagement with other people. So his is a challenging case because he's been almost um, negatively reinforced with other people and how mean they've been to him, how he's been bullied, that he doesn't want to engage for the most part with other people. So I really do mean it. I think it's great that you've you've been able to establish a rapport with him um, because I don't, I don't think his experience with humans has been very kind to him. Um, so he's had, you know, I, people on the spectrum also have trouble with um, either limited verbal skills, people can be nonverbal, um, or they can have very limited verbal skills. There may be something called echolalia present where they repeat words or phrases or they have repetitive body language. Um, Dr. Gonzalez was alluding to this with his question um, regarding STEM behavior and, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But um, some of these things can look really odd, right? Or they can sound really odd um, when you meet somebody and then they repeat the same thing over and over. It can feel uncomfortable um, when that happens. Um, but when somebody on the spectrum and you know that's part of their symptom cluster, um, it just becomes part of who they are. They might have trouble with eye contact too. It could be very uncomfortable, just like um, for people suffering from social anxiety, making eye contact can be very difficult. And I think for people in law enforcement, that might end up being a cue like, oh, is this person being evasive? Is this person not telling me the truth when this is just inherent to somebody who's living with autism spectrum disorder? Um, there can be this aversion to or avoidance of physical touch that can be very uncomfortable too. Uh, and then sensitivities to sensory input. And I have another slide later that'll talk about this, okay? They also have a really hard time, not only with their expression of self, but interpreting body language. Um, they might have a hard time recognizing social cues that are nonverbal, right? Like, have you ever thought about how, how you end a conversation with another person or how you know someone else is ready to end a conversation? Nobody, probably nobody ever taught you that or communicated that to you, but that's been part of um, your development into adulthood is, is understanding or interpreting body language or cues. Um, this is why like at a bar when somebody is drinking, they might be a little more bold in hitting on another person because they, they are not able to interpret the body cues of the other person saying like, hey, stay back, right? So um, that's, just a, that's just a kind of example of how it might, it might feel for somebody who's um, not neurotypical. They have trouble interpreting body language, okay? So about a one third of people on the spectrum are nonverbal. So you have a lot of people who might have limited verbal skills or, or no trouble at all um, with their verbal skills, okay. Uh, Dr. Martin? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Question, this is Ben Melendres from, from APD. You used the term uh, neurotypical. Would you mm -hmm. mind explaining uh, what that means and like, when, when we would hear it? Sure, yeah, so I think, um, much like most other areas of medicine, we don't wanna use the pejorative normal, right? Oh, I'm normal. I don't have autism spectrum. I'm normal. But it's really unfair to the, you know, to the you know, to people living with autism spectrum disorder. They're not neurotypical. They have a, uh, you know, a, a, a neurologic reason for some of their uh, limited communication or restricted interests. And so um, we really try to shy away from the idea of saying normal versus ASD, right? It's neurotypical versus ASD. Thanks for pointing that out. 
Um, okay, so anybody um, know what this poster, what show this is for? Anybody else binge Netflix like I have been doing during the pandemic? Oh, no takers. Okay. Well, this is, this is, um, this is a poster for love on the spectrum. This is an Australian, uh, reality dating show for all of you who are into reality dating, dating, um, television. Um, but what I like about this and a couple of my colleagues who are on, um, the network today have heard me talk about this show is that unlike like the idea of being voted off or, or like having like mean girls come after you because you're after their man sort of the ugliness of reality television, I think this is a very good depiction um, of young adults who are on the spectrum and starting to explore relationships and dating. So if anybody is working with difficult clients on the spectrum and you want to understand autism spectrum disorder and maybe a, like a you know, television sort of way that you're relaxing, I recommend this show to you. It's, it's very good. I think they did, um, and I think they were pretty sensitive to the fact that each of these uh, adults from Australia are, are um, dealing with their own things. It can be pretty, it can be uncomfortable to watch at times, just because you're seeing on full display the difficulty um, in social interactions that some of these people have. Um, some of the critics of the show called it infantilizing and that it's filled with incorrect information, um, which at times I think is true, but the, um, you know, the overarching theme in my opinion is it's really showing, it's showing you how it is that, um, people who live on the spectrum might have challenges. Um, so another criticism is it's made for neurotypical people, right? Like they're not trying to exploit these humans. I, I, I genuinely think that the director was trying to do a good job of, of exploring this other way of, of, of living for people on the spectrum. But I think it's worth looking at. So I would encourage it's on Netflix. Um, let's go back to this. So, um, so that was the social, you know, the social component. Let's talk about the repetitive behaviors and the restricted interest component. Um, so just like the, the case presentation that Detective Padilla had, um, I think this individual had a lot of these issues, right? Some restricted interests in, in their weapons or access to weapons. Um, but there's this great need for control of environment um, such that, you know, there's a lot of discomfort or protest when there's a deviation from the schedule, from their comfort level, or from what they expect. Um, so to add to some of the suggestions, Detective Padilla, I don't think that this man does well when he has a surprise, right? Um, many people don't, but I think this person in particular, if, if, he's, if he doesn't understand sequential um, consequence, he might end up being surprised and he's going to be, you know, if his behavior doesn't change, he's going to be in a homeless shelter. And can you imagine what that, that environment will be like for this, this individual be very difficult. Okay, so um, you might see people who are doing the repetitive behaviors in terms of stealth simulation. So that's the stim behavior. And that can look a lot of different ways. It can be the echolalia of words or phrases. It could be spinning objects or themselves. Um, it can be hand flapping or rocking. Um, it can, it has this, it has this wide variety of expression. Okay. And then there can be sustained, unusual, repetitive play, like lining things up. Um, there's a great number of, ex, you know, of, of examples with this, but um, it's this, you know, self-stimulation sort of behavior. Um, there can be this insistence on sameness. Um, and some obsessionality around that, right? Have, needing to have symmetry in an area or sameness, so colors get matched, numbers get matched, things get grouped. 
Um, there can be some inappropriate laughing or giggling, um, which can be really uncomfortable if you don't if you don't know that that person has a tendency towards that. Um, and then there can be this inappropriate attachment to objects, right? Like I was alluding to earlier, there's some hoarding behavior or difficulty um, parting with objects. Um, and, and, and Detective Padilla's case certainly seems to have that issue. Um, and then unfortunately, and this will tie into something we talk about when we, we talk about calls for service, when, when you all are being called, is there is this fascination with water, with lights, and with reflections as well, okay? Um, let's talk a little bit about that um, hypersensitivity or hyposensitivity to uh, sensory input. Um, people in the spectrum can sometimes have these tendencies where wearing certain articles or types of clothing is completely avoided, like something with a hood um, or something made of wool. They don't want that. And so you'll hear a lot of advocates for you know, parents of kids on the spectrum who are really upset about the mandates for um, wearing masks, right? That the, the kids on the spectrum would really have a hard time um, with being forced to, to wear a mask. And so I think it takes that extra level of sensitivity. This is a really weird time for everyone, but um, I can't imagine trying to be a parent of a kid who has a hypersensitivity like this and knowing that they're forced to wear a mask. Um, they might dislike being touched. They might have this oversensitivity to sights, sounds, smells, taste, something can, can become. That was perfect timing, oversensitivity to sound. Um, they might have difficulty with their sense of movement um, and then difficulty with fine motor or motor planning activities, um, right? Like grasping a pencil or um, multi-step motor activities, okay? Um, so kind of some more examples of this is that oftentimes we have these tags, like I have these buttons on the back of my dress um, today, and uh, we often have tags, and those can be really bothersome to people. Um, so keep that in mind if you're interacting with the person in the field who's maybe tugging on themselves a little bit. That might be what they're reaching for. Um, and then, you know, I want to say to parents, sometimes take it for granted their ability to hug their children. And even a simple hug for a person on the spectrum or an offering of a handshake, even though I, I doubt that we're going to continue doing that as, a, as humanity from now on out, that can be really uncomfortable for them, right? Um, but this, the motor, the difficulty with motor planning, um, think about uh, when you're doing a field sobriety test. Um, what you might ask somebody to do, which is standing on one foot. Somebody with on the spectrum might have trouble with that at baseline, um, whether or not they're intoxicated, okay? So just some things to keep in mind. So we focus a lot on, you know, some of the, the things that people on the spectrum struggle with, but I wanna, I wanna focus on for a minute some of the strengths, okay? Um, so uh, this is that by, you know, by no means, um, you know, in, does it encompass the entirety of the strengths for people? But um, people on the spectrum really tend to have strong visual skills and memory to detail. They also almost have this ability to hyper-focus on things. And I think Detective Vidya's uh, case shows that, right? Like he, um, he freezes up with too much information. He's unable to focus. But then when you get him talking about his, you know, his, his weapons, it's almost this hyper-focused to a point that it feels uncomfortable, I bet. Like you want to move on from that topic, but he doesn't want to. It's, it's the ability to kind of hyper-focus on those special interests. 
Um, like I said, about 45% are um, have normal IQ or above average IQ. So these are you know some very intelligent individuals. Um, following rules, honesty, um, those those sorts of characteristics tend to you know to happen with autism spectrum disorders. So they have a hard time lying, right? And then problem solving as well. So I wanted to give you a couple of examples, but I first wanted to tell you about one of my patients in residency. Um, in my fourth year of training at Emory, I, I did an, a, an entire year at the autism spectrum, the autism adult clinic. Um, in my um, in my time working there, I, I met a, a young man, he was 19, and he had a fascination with highway systems. And he, um, he kind of, I don't know why he chose this city in Florida, but he chose a city in Florida who had a lot of trouble with traffic. And he built his own, you know, redesign of their, of their traffic flow. And he presented the, um, he presented the, the details, the, the plan to the city council, and they actually purchased it from him. And he, you know, he made a, he made a lot of money from it. He I don't think he'd ever visited the city. He just did some research. And so it kind of shows you um, some of the amazing strengths that come along with somebody being on the spectrum. So I want to point out two individuals. You might have heard of some of them. We talked about Stephen Whitshire before. This is a British art uh, artist who basically can, he can draw detailed cityscapes um, either from seeing them once or from seeing a picture of them. Um, and so, I mean, these are lifelike, they're really accurate. It's usually street scenes or, you know, uh, skylines. Um, but he, he'll usually, you know, observe them very briefly, like I said. So this is him at action. He's got a really cool website that details his work. Um, and as he should, he sells them for a lot of money. And he has autism spectrum disorder. And then for those who don't know much about farming um, and cattle processing, I'm from Las Cruces, so I have to know some about this. But this is Temple Grandin, and she also has autism, she, autism spectrum disorder. She's um, a professor of animal science at Colorado State University, actually, and she's a huge consultant to the livestock industry uh, because she invented the processing chutes for livestock. Um, and she did that because she, you know, thought about what it would be like for an animal to be being led to their slaughter. Not so much the like, you know, the the morality of that or not, but just the comfort of of making that process go easier. And so she, you know, she developed um, and ha and and has been able to sell and act as a consultant in this field um, because of autism spectrum disorder. So it's it's pretty cool. Um, and she's got some really cool websites. Uh, our website um, detailing her work as well. She's a, a really great speaker too, if you've ever had the chance. Um, so, so there's really a lot of strengths and, and I don't wanna, I don't wanna just comment on the, the issues that people are struggling with. Um, but let's, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the specific neuropsychiatric issues or general health issues that might come up for somebody on the spectrum. Um, so autism associated health care problems really expend, they extend the entire lifespan of the person that we're working with from young children to senior citizens. Um, but unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of money and support for people under 18. Once we age out of a school system, um, there's not as much support as much um, um, specialized care for these people and so this is this is something as our prevalence increases and as those as those children age out of a system we'll have a number of adults living on the spectrum with very little support um, in terms of their community and, and, and medical care. Um, what we do know is that about a, a third of all two to five-year-olds with autism are overweight and 16% are obese that follows along some of the national trends 
uh, for obesity in our country, um, but it's actually worse. So it's you know about a quarter of two to three, two to two to five year olds in the U.S. are um, overweight, and only about ten percent are, are obese. So there there tends to be a worsened problem with obesity in um, in in children living with autism. Um, Depression comes up a fair amount, right? About 7% in children and 20%, sorry, 26% in adults um, with autism. And that's, um, that's higher as well. It's about one in five women, sorry, one in four women, one in five men. Um, and then anxiety disorders are estimated to uh, 11 to 40% of children and teens on the spectrum. Um, we tend to see these attentional issues. And so these get lumped in with ADD, ADHD, um, but it tends to, to happen a lot more. And what's interesting is kids oftentimes get identified by their teachers as having this issue before the autism spectrum disorder um, actually even is brought up. So it's about 30 to 60% of, of kids with autism. Uh, and then more than half of children with autism have one or more chronic sleep issues. That's disordered sleep and issues around sleep is a really big deal um, you know, for people on the spectrum. Um, and then about one third of people have uh, issues with seizure epilepsy, uh, and that can either be related to a genetic reason um, for their autism spectrum disorder or completely separate. Um, and then some, like I said, alluded to earlier, the obsessional or persever perseveratory nature of some of their behavior. And then some of these things cannot not at all be a disorder. They can be um, have difficulty with emotional coping skills, right, or stress management. Some of these things that we all we all struggle with can be a big deal. Um, there have been a number of studies that suggest schizophrenia affects 4 to 35% of adults, all the way up to 35% of adults with autism, whereas um, from previous lectures on the network, I know you all know that 1% of the general population is affected with schizophrenia in the U.S. So it's a lot higher. We tend to see this overarching, um, you know, psychotic symptoms associated with um, autism. Um, that may or may not represent a separate, uh, <clears throat> a separate illness, okay? So there's a number of health issues. I'm gonna briefly talk or touch on treatment um, that we do use a number of medications um, to help target some of those specific symptoms. And I think Detective Padilla, with your case, if your patient, if your, if your case, or I don't know, you probably don't call them patients, but um, if this contact of yours ever shows more interest in obtaining treatment, you might be able to use, you know, insomnia or his anxiety or any other hook to get him into treatment rather than saying, let's get your ASD treated, right? Um, so we use a lot of atypical antipsychotics, mostly uh, for the disruptive behavior, agitation, or irritability. And there are two that have been FDA approved, and that's aripiprazole or Abilify and Risper Risperidone or Risperidol. And we um, tend to prefer low doses of those medications because, um, as you all know, those, those have a lot of side effects as well. And weight gain, unfortunately, is one of them. So we don't want to give a person who's already struggling with obesity more of a reason to be struggling with obesity. Um, so those are the two atypical antipsychotics we use. Um, we use the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors um, to really target repetitive behaviors and social anxiety and depression. Uh, we use the anti-epileptic medications, the seizure medications, uh, more to target irritability and disruptive behavior. Uh, and then a fair number of the, the psychostimulants, so um, you know, prescription you know, Adderall or Ritalin, and that's either to improve attention, um, focus, decrease impulsivity, or the hyperactivity components. 
Um, and then of course, we've got a lot of experimental um, drugs that are being used and looked into now. And, and, it, and it ranges from, you know, kind of some of the stranger things to some really promising research. So one of the, 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 um, the experimental drugs being looked at right now is um, oxytocin. So oxytocin, as a lot of people on the network might know, um, it's involved in the recognition of faces and creating social memories. It's basically a chemical. It's um, one of our feel-good chemicals that develops bonds and trust and um, has, tends to have a lot of immune and um, anti-inflammatory and anti-obesity effects too. Um, it also helps with wound healing and dampening of the fear response to threat. So there's some really cool research with oxytocin and ASD right now. And then um, something called a vasopressin 1A antagonist, um, which seem to be associated with um, people recognizing fear. Um, so those are the two of the experimental. It gets even weirder. I know they're looking at like gut microbiome stuff and injecting people with like um, you know, pig worms and doing some weird stuff. But those are the two areas of research that I'm watching. So I know two weeks ago, we talked a little bit about ABA. So those were, that's some of the psychopharmacologic management of, of autism spectrum. But you know, we were talking about um, ABA or applied behavioral analysis. So I wanted to make sure we, we, we touched on this um, today. So um, being a graphic person, I wanted to put this up here. What uh, essentially what applied behavioral analysis is, is learning how a behavior works um, and how that behavior isn't affected by the environment and how it takes place, okay? Um, so the, the idea is that we increase behaviors that are helpful and decrease behaviors that are harmful. Um, and in doing that by increasing language and communication or impro improving focus and social skills, okay? So the mainstay of it and the way that it works is positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement works for most of us, that there's a reward after some behavior and, and, and identifying that. So this can work for people on all levels of the spectrum, from those who are nonverbal all the way up to very highly you know, functioning neurotypical people. Um, and we all do this in our day-to-day, -day, you know, life. Um, we don't really call it ABA. Um, but for, for instance, for me, when I have a lot of charts I have to do, I'll sometimes say, like, you get five gummy bears if you finish one of these charts, right? And that's a form of a positive reward. So I bet you do this as well in your own life. Um, and, and, and this is a way of kind of breaking that down and, and creating a, a positive reward experience for people. Um, so I knew that we were going to talk a little bit about the common calls for ass assistance, and this gets really sad pretty quickly. I mean, a, a lot of the times it's missing persons. So about 50% of children will elope at some point, um, and, you know, not for the typical running away, but just out of curiosity, right, that there might be something shiny out in the lawn and they keep walking. So unfortunately, like I said, about one-third of, of kids on the spectrum, they are, they're nonverbal, and um, about, about that same amount can't communicate their name or their address or their phone. And about 91% of deaths related to wandering are, are caused by drowning. And, and, and people wonder if that's related to this fascination with water. You might be called for odd behavior on another person's property, right? Somebody may be spinning or rocking or flapping their hands on another person's property and they don't know they have autism spectrum. That can look a little strange. Uh, splashing in water fountains being on swings and slides, like you can have like a 300 pound, you know, adult male on the spectrum who's is very much enjoying a children's playset, um, and not meaning any, you know, malintent, but that, you know, that, I'm sure that 
that makes people uncomfortable as well. Um, making order of objects. I think I, I think in times that I've presented um, on the network before, somebody somebody brought up uh, one of their contacts was ordering uh, things in a grocery store, and that bothered that bothered people at the grocery store. Um, approaching strangers. Was that you, Ben? Uh, yeah, so approaching strangers or, or being, you know, being odd, not having the ability to really know, you know, recognize the, 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 the social cues. Um, and then, like I said, missing persons. Okay, so, you know, what, what might first responders see or hear when you're first on the scene with somebody with autism spectrum? Well, again, if you take anything away from this lecture is that people on the spectrum will look perfectly typical. Even the most skilled geneticists um, can't take a look at a person's face with autism spectrum and say they've got the genetic faces of somebody with autism spectrum. Certainly, Fragile X has a certain appearance, elongated face, you know, ears that are wide set and, um, and, and look a little bit strange, but in general, people with autism spectrum look perfectly typical. Um, they might not respond to a stop command. They might attempt to move away or run away when approached. Uh, they may cover their ears or look away. And then, like I said earlier, they might have the motor skill problems that can affect their gait. Uh, and then, like I said, they might display this unusual or repetitive physical movements, okay? So we're gonna talk about the autism response method. And this was designed for first responders when interacting with somebody with um, autism spectrum. And it, and it goes off of the acronym of autism, which I think is pretty helpful. Um, so we'll start with the A, which is approach. You wanna approach in a quiet and non-threatening manner. Um, avoiding quick motions or gestures that could be perceived as threatening. U is understanding um, certain tendencies, right? Avoiding physical contact being one of them. Um, T, talking in a moderated or calm voice, keeping your language short, uh, simple and concrete. Uh, and then, you know, knowing that you might have to repeat yourself or allow time for a response time. Uh, there's this thing called increased latency of response in, in our mental status evaluation as psychiatrists that I comment on a lot. Um, and it can, the increased latency of response, meaning the time that it takes somebody to respond to a question you have can be uh, longer for somebody who's you know, suffering from severe depression or somebody on the spectrum. And it may be indicative of difficulty with output of speech or might be indicative of the processing that it's happening for the person to intake your question and then you know, create the response to it. But um, that can be frustrating too for people when, that, when the latency of response is really high. Um, with the I, it's instructions, right? You want to provide very simple and direct instructions. You're going to want you're going to want to avoid slang that could cause confusion and inappropriate response. And um, you know, don't use euphemisms. So things like, "Do you think that's cool?" Colloquially, I think in our society and for neurotypical persons, we all know what that means. But for somebody who has a more concrete way of thinking, they might imagine you're talking about temperature, right? They, they have a, a variety of things that they might think of when you say that. Um, some other examples of what have you got up your sleeve, right? Uh, are you pulling my leg or even up against the wall? That the directions that come or the, the ideas that come from some of those, um, you know, kind of slanged response can be confusing for people. And so the best way that I have to, you know, to demonstrate this for you is to give you some Australian slang yourself 
I'm not going to try to do these in an Aussie, uh, an Aussie voice, but I want to know what you guys think. Um, whose turn is it to shout out for ice cream means? What do you think that means? I think it would help if you did the Australian accent, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, I think you just, I think you just volunteered, volunteered yourself, Ben. Go ahead. Uh, ben Melendres, uh, I actually have no idea whose turn is it for to pay the bill. Yeah, that's good. Whose turn is it to buy the ice cream? Okay, how about this one, Ben? Go ahead and, and do that in an Aussie. I, my my Aussie accent okay. is, is not uh, not worthy of this particular format. Okay. Anybody else? So what do you think? Do you put the togs in the boot? Means. No idea, right? No, no clue. It, it's uh, did you put the bathing suit in the trunk? And then finally, yabbies or snags for tea. Same. I have no idea. Like nothing in my life has helped me to understand what this means. It means shrimp or sausage for dinner. Okay. So you can imagine this is a small example of what somebody on the spectrum might be like, you have no idea what that means when it's said to you. So try to avoid using metaphors or slang terms. Um, so back to our autism response method. So the S stands for seek. Um, all you want to look at all indicators that evaluate as, as a situation as unfolding as it's unfolding. And you guys are experts at this, uh, but being willing to adjust your actions accordingly, right? So I, when I was working in Atlanta, had a patient on the spectrum who was nonverbal who came in would not calm down. No amount of verbal communication and attempts to de-escalate him in the ER would help. Um, but I got on the phone with his dad and his dad told me he really likes Dorito chips. He really likes those. Those usually calm him down. And so like, yeah, I don't have Dorito chips in my, you know, my, my medication room, but we got some and it did, it worked. It, it like it, it avoided him needing to get medications, uh, injected into his muscles and kept everybody safe. But this was a very large man, um, who was nonverbal and yeah, the chips worked. And so being willing to, being willing to adjust in that moment, I've never ever since given another person chips as means of calming them down. I do know that Ben likes Cheetos. So we'll have to, you know, next time he's really upset, you guys get him some of those, but be willing to adjust your actions accordingly, okay? And then visually evaluating a person for injury because they might not be able to um, to ask for that sort of help. They might not be able to tell you that they're hurt, right? There's the, the nonverbal component. Um, and then finally, maintain. So maintain a safe distance until inappropriate behaviors lessens and lessen, and then remain alert that impulsive behaviors or outbursts can occur. Okay. So some tips to interacting with people. Um, um, and then I think one of the other things that we talk about is avoiding using lights and sirens. I, I think that, uh, in general, when we're communicating to the rest of society, there's a, an event happening or people need to move out of the way. This can be perceived in terms of that hypersensitivity for people on the spectrum. This can be really, really overwhelming and can in, impact their ability to interact with you as first responders. Okay. So this is a little intervention, uh, techniques tip sheet. Um, and then, you know, finally, there's this card for people. I encourage families and, um, and patients who have autism um, to carry a card like this uh, so that they can give this to people if they're interacting with them as first responders. Um, and so this is on um, uh, Alabama's state website. I know that when Jen Earhart was still with us, we were trying to get the money to have one 
um, done, you know, that, uh, you know, a, a CIU one, and I'm not, I have to email her and see where that went, but it'd be really cool to have a card like this where we could put, you know, a person's name and address and telephone at the, the back of that. Um, there's a couple of resources that I'd like to point you to if you want more information. So Autism Society of America is very good. Autism Speaks is a terrific organization and advocate for uh, patients and families. The CDC has really great data on autism spectrum and they update that um, every two, you know, they keep it very updated in terms of their data collection. And then this autism response method is part of Dennis DeBalt's um, resources. So he's a field expert this is his website um, and he you know he from what I understand of this person he's a, um, a detective himself and he he does a lot of um, lecturing and um, you know providing um, specialized lectures to law enforcement um, on this specific topic so a lot of the, the FBI's data on autism comes from him and um, he's a field expert in this area so his is he has a number of books and articles that can be good resources as well so with that, I'll, I'll take any questions that you might have. Dr. Martin, it's Rob Garnan from CIU. First, thank you for the excellent presentation. And second, I was curious if you had any specific tips about coming into contact with someone who has autism spectrum disorder, but they're nonverbal, like tips that are specific to people who are nonverbal. I'm, I'm sure a lot of those tips apply to all of it. But mm -hmm. any specific tips for uh, nonverbal specifically? Yeah, so it's hard, right? Because you're not going to know they're nonverbal right away. Like no one's going to, unless you know that about the person, um, that's going to be really, really challenging. So I think if they're alone, um, you know, this becomes a challenging situation without, if you're trying to find out who they are or identification. Um, just because they're nonverbal doesn't mean that their input is, is impaired, right? So just because output is impaired doesn't mean input is impaired. Um, but I would be very, very clear in your speech and concise. Um, and you might even like say you're trying to get the person to show you an ID or like see if you have an ID rather than trying to reach in their pockets to help them. You might take out your own ID and point to it, right? So like, you might use a combination of very simple language um, and then, you know, um, showing them some things too. Um, if the person's not calm, I would work on getting them calm first before you're trying to get anything out of them. Um, but yeah, those, those are really challenging interactions. And for me, like from a medical perspective, it's really difficult aside from doing an overview of, of their, you know, of doing a physical exam um, to get clinical information. And I depend heavily on family um, um, you know, or other advocates to collect that information. So yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't know if I have any other tips aside from that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I had a question, Dr. Martin Spen with uh, APD. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for putting the strengths of folks with uh, ASD into the presentation. It's not often that we do that. Um, so uh, I certainly appreciate it. I was wondering, you mentioned this stimming or repetitive behavior that that, that sometimes people on the spectrum will do. Would it be advantageous for an officer to let that behavior continue if it wasn't posing a threat? Does it help calm them down or? Yeah, great, great question, Ben. Thank you, thank you for that one. So yes, a lot of the time the stim behavior occurs 
in, in an excitatory state, whether that person is excited about, you know, an event that's happening or a meal, or it's because they're, ner they're nervous or anxious. Um, and so preventing STEM behavior, I mean, certainly you want to make sure a scene is secure, um, and, 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 but allowing a certain level of STEM behavior that's not going to, you know, to impair that person's safety or your safety, I would permit to occur. Um, so some examples of that might be like, you know, hand flapping, it's a little uncomfortable, but if they're not hitting anybody, the hand flapping itself, um, it just, it just looks weird, right? It look, just seems stressful. And I think inherently for us, when we see somebody moving in that sort of way, we, our tendency is to try to like hug them or calm them down. But um, you'll ask patients um, who are verbal and able to explain why it is that they stim and they feel better after they've done it. It's almost like this compulsive feeling. Yeah, good question. Thank you. What other questions? Well, if there's no more, you know, I wish our state in New Mexico had a place like the Emory Autism Center. We um, have a lot of resources that will need to be built, especially for adults on the spectrum. Um, but I want to, you know, I want to thank the training. I want to, I want to thank Emory for my, my training at the center and the, um, my mentor there, uh, Dr. Joseph Cubells, is a real great advocate um, for people on the spectrum. So I'm hoping that, you know, um, that we can continue to, to come up with resources for people on the spectrum here in our state and, and develop a, you know, develop a system that could mimic what other states have for adults on the spectrum. So thank you so much for your attention today and inviting me to speak. Um, and if you have any questions, please feel free to email me um, and, you know, talk to me off offline. Thank you so much, Dr. Martin.